So now we're going to move on to another concept, and we're going to keep moving down the line. We're going to only focus on one chapter today in one book, in one gospel. There's a reason for it. We're going to look at John chapter 3. The reason we're only focusing on John this week is because this is only mentioned in John. So as you parallel these, which in like a couple weeks, I will hopefully have by this point so we don't kill every tree in America. Uh, <laughs> I... I I will hopefully figure out how to get this into the notes, but it's a spreadsheet that is epically long, and it is all four Gospels, every story and event that happens, and who accounts for it, where they account for it, right? So like, and when you do that, you'll see something interesting where they kind of line up, but then you see this one place where John kind of goes off on his own <laughs> and kind of just tells a bunch of stories, like four, that no one else tells, and then they all kind of line up again. And then, like, this guy kind of goes off on his own and tells a little story that maybe no one else tells. But John tends to do this more often than not. John does this about three times where he kind of just goes off and shares some stories. Now, the interesting thing that you'll find out is that these stories fall directly in line with the ideas that are being portrayed prior and after in John and in other Gospels. So we have to remember how many synoptic Gospels are there. Three, how many Gospels are there in total? Four, John's is considered an abstract or a spiritual gospel. His intent to the reader, and you actually find it out at the very end of John, if you read the last little bit of John, John tells you straight up why I wrote this was so that you would believe in the person of Christ. So he's concerned with spiritual belief. He is not really concerned about historical accuracy. Does that mean it is not historically accurate? No, that just meant that was not what he was focused on, right? Okay, makes sense. My wife and I have this kind of an argument all the time when I'm telling a story. I'll kind of breeze past certain things, and she's like, well, it really wasn't on Tuesday. I'm like, that doesn't matter. I, okay, fine. It was on Monday, you know, like literally two days ago. We just had this. I was like, like a week and a half ago, she said that was three days ago. I was like, okay, fine. It doesn't matter. Here's what I'm trying to communicate. Think of that like, I see a lot of couples right now. Pause. Let's watch the marriage sessions we did. Uh, <laughs> so, the idea, though, here, this is kind of John, right? John is kind of saying, like, hey, I'm not super focused on the when. I'm focused on who did it, the person of Christ, and how and why he did what he did. That's what he's focused on. So this story is only accounted for in John, and this is John chapter 3, okay? John chapter 3 is about a man named Nicodemus. Who's ever heard the story of Nicodemus, okay? What we're about to do is break down this chapter, John chapter 3. Now, in your head right now, you should be thinking of, for sure, two verses. John 3.16, that is the most popular verse. Out of the, like, 30,000 verses there are in the Bible, there's like 30,000 uh, different verses, this is the one, right? Like, just, I mean, every language, every person, if you ask someone, do you know a Bible verse, the odds are they're going to quote this one if, they, if they've known one. That gets hard-pressed, especially here in the Bible Belt, right, to find someone that can't quote John 3.16, right? And then you should be thinking of a second one because you walk past it every time you walk in here, John 3. 30. Now, we will not get through the entire chapter of John tonight. We will get to the end of the story of Nicodemus, um, if God willing and the creek don't rise. Uh, so, let's first talk about, uh, that was, y'all never heard that, was that a little another country one? Okay, God willing and the creek don't rise. That has nothing to do with the creek water, it actually to do with the creek Indians, because if they rose up, then they would kill you and scalp you. So, uh, fun little history lesson for you. Now, let's talk about Nicodemus real quick. 
Nicodemus was an early follower of Christ, okay? So he's one of the, the former, uh, you know, people. He's uniquely mentioned in the fourth gospel, which is John. And according to this, he is a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, real quick, I'm not going to dive into super details. It's not a part of our study right here. But the Pharisees are super. We talked about them. They're super affluent people. They are the religious keepers of the temple, okay? The Sanhedrin are like the council of that. Like, I mean, so this dude is, is connected and, and, and he is very, very important in Jerusalem and to the people, uh, uh, to the Jewish people at the time. Now he's also mentioned at the time of, uh, of the crucifixion. He's mentioned about four or five other times in the book of John. Um, and we do know that Nicodemus, historically speaking, is a real guy. Okay, so this is not like John just created some character that he thought would be good. No, this is a real guy that, from all accounts, it seems, was an early follower of Christ within John and outside of it. Now, one of the things we need to know as we're looking into the story, I want to give you a couple pretexts, and, then, and then, then we'll go into it. Nicodemus thinks that Jesus is just another great teacher. That's his kind of general view of Christ up front, okay? And Jesus tries to tell him something very important in this story we're about to read. Jesus tries to tell him, hey, Israel doesn't need just another teacher, doesn't need more information. Israel needs a new heart. Israel needs a whole new perspective on this thing. They need an eternal life. That's what he's trying to get at, okay? Now, real quick, for all of you people who love, whoops, what am, oh, hello, I broke it. Oh, okay, there we go. Can, yeah, I told y'all we're going to be unplugged with this one. Okay, real quick, for all you people who love all the hidden knowledge, I'll make sure and just rip the Band-Aid off. Well, well, have you ever heard of the Gospel of Nicodemus and the Gospel of Joseph of Arimathea? Yes, these are called apocryphal gospels, specifically Nicodemus. Yes, it is a, a account that seems to have came from Nicodemus, except for it didn't. It was written 500 years later. So, nope, probably not a first-hand account by any stance. Not to mention there are things in this particular book, which is not in your Bible, if you've got like, uh, the, any Bible with the Apocrypha in it, which would be like a Catholic Bible will have it in there. I'm not saying it's like wrong stuff. It's, just, it's, it's a story that's written to try to help understand things. That's cool, that's fine, but it is not first-hand knowledge. That is why it was tossed out later on is because this only goes back like again, closer to like four to five hundred years. So obviously not written by Nicodemus. It also uses phrasing as in terms in it that are nothing to do with the time and the culture of Nicodemus, has everything to do with the time of the culture like in the Greek era. And even things later on were changed in like the Viking medieval era. Words that were not even in existence at the time that it was written. Does that make sense? So it's changed a lot over time. That's why it was something like, hey, you know, is there anything in it? I've, I've skimmed through it, you know, a little bit. Just like, is there anything in it that's like, oh, wow, this is majorly wrong? No, kind of gives you a same general account, just a lot more details. If you look in this as well, uh, there's another one called the Acts of Pilate and stuff like that. Uh, there's also one, Joseph Arimathea, where you see like, oh, the, the two, you know, robbers beside Jesus, here's their names and stuff like this. It's like, it's all irrelevant information, okay? I just want to give that information out there because I know someone's going to come up to me afterwards and be like, did you know? Yes, because it's not hidden knowledge. That's just not good knowledge, so we don't care. Um, all right, so fair enough. So let's jump into reading this. We are going to do some uh, word definitions here. 
this evening. This is as big as I can get the text. You can follow along in your Bible. This is the King James Version, so I'm going to read from that. Uh, again, I apologize if I stumble through it because sometimes like, my head is faster than what I can physically actually read, and so I may stumble through it a little bit, and I apologize if so. But let's read this together, and we're going to kind of do it in, 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 uh, in breaks here. We're going to read a little bit, and instead of like reading it and then going back like we kind of do on a Sunday, we're just going to read, and everywhere that we need to define something, we're just going to stop and define it right then and there, okay? Does that make sense? We're just going to go through it as we go through it. So, there was a man, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, okay? Ruler of the Jews meaning because he was a Pharisee and he was of the Sanhedrin. That's, he's the council, okay? That's what that means right there. Um, and, uh, this is verse 2. The same came to Jesus by night, okay? That's a King James way of saying the guy I just mentioned is the guy I'm I'm talking about the same this guy okay came to Jesus by night and said unto him rabbi or that is to say teacher right we know that you are a teacher come from God for no man can do the miracles that you do except be God be with him okay so what what are we seeing right now again this is how we need to read when you're reading anything in scripture like just stop and be like okay what did I just read like what, what, okay, there's a man who's a ruler of the Jews. He's a Pharisee, high, high fluting guy. He's very, very important. And he comes to Jesus by night, which is the first thing we should be like, why? Why by night? Well, because he's kind of afraid. He's got high position. He did not want to be associated because Jesus was not a liked person. That's just kind of, as you continue on, you'll see this. If you're not aware, Jesus wasn't very liked, okay? Uh, so don't be surprised when you're not very liked. Now, if you're rude, that's, you should change that. Um, but <laughs> So Jesus comes to, uh, he comes to Jesus by night and says, Rabbi or teacher, we know you're a teacher. So he's, he's saying, hey, I know, you, I know you know God. Like, and you're sent from God. He even kind of, like, God, God's with you, you know? Like, you're teaching us things. So there's some things that apparently what Jesus taught people accepted. And he's like, hey, we know these things because you do these miracles. We got you. But Jesus says to him, all right, so you know this, but this is what Jesus says. And Jesus answered him and said, verily, verily, uh, verily, verily, I say unto thee. Real quick, let's just decipher some King James. I'm using the word decipher. Why? Not because it's hidden from you. For you, we don't speak King James, okay? Verily, verily, I say unto you is like truly, truly, I say to you. Or me, wave and say, hey, I'm telling you the truth right now. Like, th that's all that phrase is. You see it a lot in the King James, right? So, hey, verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So let's, let's, let's pause for a while, okay? Except, meaning this is, this is the only thing that will cause this, to be born again. So we need to define this word born real quick. The word born, uh, you probably can't see it because it's really t little text, but that's actually the, uh, the Greek right here for it. Um, and it literally means to be begotten of, okay? To, like to be begotten of, okay? So unless you are begotten or you come from, okay? You come from something. So unless you were born again, now let's define this word again. This word again, now you got to understand, remember, what is John? He's a spiritual gospel and he is a literary ninja, okay? Just think of him that way all the time. He knows what he's doing. He was not dumb. So he uses this word again, but this word again in Greek means from above. So what he's doing right here, okay, I'm giving you a little hint of what you're going to see. What he's doing right here is to the reader, to you reading the story, he's giving you a little bit of insight as to what Jesus is saying. He purposefully used a word that meant from above, okay? But 
when Jesus is speaking, the word that he's using is again. So John's doing a little play on words. He likes to do this a lot. He's kind of a fun guy, you know. He kind of just likes to pepper it in there. Because what he's trying to do is communicate to you as the reader what Jesus is talking about before you get to Jesus having to re-explain himself five times because people don't listen. Okay? He says, so unless a man be born again from above, okay, he cannot see the kingdom of God, okay? So you cannot, and the word see here means to perceive. So you can't perceive or you can't understand what the kingdom of God. The word kingdom is the word basileia in the Greek, and that means the way a king does things. We're learning. Uh, <laughs> the way a king does things. So it's his rule, his dominion, and the way he wants something done. So what is, what is Jesus saying? Truly, hey, I'm saying to you, unless you are born, unless you come from above, you can't even perceive what the kingdom of God is about. You can't even understand how God wants to do things. So Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter in a second time to his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus is thinking like, literally born again, right? And so John already kind of gave us as the reader a little bit of insight as to where he's going. And obviously we should have had that insight because if the spirit of God be with us, when we read things in scripture, we should get spirit out of it, not just natural understanding. So Nicodemus says, how is, how is this the case? Further proving, by the way, that he cannot perceive the kingdom of God. Do you see how John does that? He's kind of showing us. And Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto you, dude, I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Okay, so now, Jesus kind of changes it up a bit. Now he says, hey, let me clarify this for you. You've got to be born. You've got to be gotten of. You've got to come from water and of Spirit, or you can't enter into. Well, why didn't he say see again? Anyone ever thought of that? So the first time he says you can't perceive it, and the next time he says now you can't enter into it. Well, we need to kind of look. Uh, whoops, wrong one. There we go. We need to kind of look over here. What does the word enter? It means to go in or to come out of, like a house or a city. So he says you enter into. So the first thing he's saying you can't perceive how it is. The next thing he's saying is now you can't come into this abode, this place, this, this house. You can't be a part of this, this like domain and this city. Because if you can't perceive it, how are you ever going to go in or through it? If you can't see the door, how do you walk through the door? Now, some of you who have already read maybe some of the future things we're going to read, you're like, hey, wait, isn't like Jesus says paradise and like a city in Zion? And is like, yeah, it's all connected right there. Okay. Now, the interesting thing is the word into. You can't enter into. So you can't come into this city in the word into. It actually means a purpose. Like you can't walk into a purpose of something. So what is, what is he saying? Hey, you've got to be born again from above. And he's saying, hey, there's two births happening here, right? What we're seeing first is born of water. Then what we're seeing next is born of the spirit. Or you can't enter. You cannot become a part of and be of the purposes of the kingdom of God. Y'all see that? But let's talk real quick about this water and spirit. We need to, de to determine what this word spirit right here means. The word spirit in the Greek is the word pneuma. That's where we get the word pneumonia from, right? It means breath, okay? That's what it means, all right? So Jesus continues on. Hey, if you're not born of water and of spirit, real quick, this born of water, 
if you look in your notes, I gave you like five different things that people kind of talk and I'll say quote unquote argue about, about born of water. The primary thing that most people believe is that this is a natural birth is what it's referring to. That seems to carry the most weight, okay? Probably what he was talking about. There are other things that seem to refer to like this uh, Jewish ritual maybe, and, and maybe that was what he was talking about, but it doesn't seem to play as you continue to read. So it, more than likely born of water. So you'll see in there in your notes, I put like kind of what the five general ideas were uh, there. In my view, this text seems to be saying born of the natural and born of the spirit. We can see this because that was the very next phrase he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. All right. This is kind of just him honing in on it. Pastor Eric, what are you doing here, man? <laughs> Sorry. I just looked up and saw him back there at the back. Uh, so if you're born of the flesh is flesh. This is Jesus being explicitly clear with, hey, if it is natural, the word flesh here meaning natural, something you can see, touch, feel, it's in this world, it's natural. If it's spirit, then it's spirit, making a clear distinction between these two things and saying, hey, these two births I'm talking about, yeah, you got this, this physical one, but we've got this spirit one over here we need to kind of dive into a little bit more. Now, this word spirit, remember I said we were going to define it, the word pneuma means breath. You need to keep that understanding pretty much throughout all of the New Testament. Every writer, almost, almost unanimously, when they see the word spirit, it's always the word pneuma, like 99% of the time. There's a few exceptions to that. And it always means breath. It always has to do with this idea of life given from God kind of a thing, okay? So J Jesus continues on after, hey, if you're born of the spirit, it's spirit. Marvel not, so don't, don't be you know, confused by this, that I say that you must be born again. That word again is the same one we just defined, right? It means from above. And then right here, the wind blows, and I'm going to read this in more, and not bloweth, where it lists. Uh, the wind blows where it wills. The word list means to, a will, a, a purpose, okay? And, it, and you hear the sound thereof, but you can't tell where it comes from and whether it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Let's break this down real quick, though. This is a fun thing here. Again, remember John, literary ninja. Because here, this word wind is the exact same word here as spirit. It's the exact same. There's no difference. It's the word pneuma. Now, let's talk about this breakdown of, so the wind blows. Now, why was in English? Why didn't they put spirit? Because he's drawing a parallel because the word pneuma would have been used interchangeably as meaning spirit or meaning like the wind, breath, like to breathe, right? Like they, they would have just used it uh, because in the context you use it and it depends on what you're talking about, right? So right here we're getting a natural example that has spiritual understanding, right? Everything in scripture, if y'all haven't wrote this down a thousand times by now, write it down right now. Everything in scripture is given for spiritual understanding and natural application. So what we're seeing right here is a natural understanding of something that gives us some spiritual understanding of how it works, so then we can go and apply this later on. We're going to see this in just a minute. So it's, let's, let's kind of uh, do a little bit of, a, of hermeneutical translation here, and we're going to say that the Spirit blows. Now, the word blow here is, means to breathe. So you have the breath breathes. So the Spirit of God breathes wherever he wants. You don't get to choose it. It happens wherever. But you can hear the sound. Now, here's the sound right here. means like to be endowed with. You have the power to hear it, this sound. Now, this is a cool part, the word sound, because I'm a musician. 
Okay, so you, y'all know I got to go on this. This word sound means a noise from an inanimate object. The example is like an instrument, meaning this instrument is played by something, and when you observe the thing, you hear the sound coming from the thing, but that's not the thing that made the sound, right? If I got on the piano right now and I played it, what made the sound? You say, well, the piano makes the sound, but it does nothing unless I play it. Real quick, this is a little bit of tapestry woven to help us understand creation sings to the glory of God. Creation is not God because it does nothing without his spirit. That's, are we seeing this? This is kind of what, what's being said right here. You hear the sound of it. I also like the fact that the word for it in Greek is spelt P-H-I-A-N-O, almost like piano. So It's not where we get the word, but I just found it cool. <laughs> so, but you can hear the sound. So you hear this noise. You hear this, this speech. It's almost like at the beginning of John chapter 1, he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Are y'all seeing this? Okay. All right. So he says, but you cannot tell where it comes from. So you, you, but you, so you can see it, but you can't tell where it comes from. Okay? Now, real quick, let's look a bit. You can't tell. The word tell there is the same word as to see or perceive. So now, remember, he's tying it back to you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't tell where it's coming from. Now, some of you, again, some of you Bible scholars are thinking about things Jesus says later on about my kingdom's not of this world. You can't point to it here or there. We're going to see this like in four weeks or so, okay? You can't tell where. Whence, the word whence means from where or like what author. Like you, you don't know the full authorship of it. And then where it comes from. And I love the fact real quick, if you can see this, the word uh, wither in the King James, it would be the word wither. This word uh, in the Greek literally means from where, but numeral locations. It's almost like God's omnipresent or something, and that's what he's trying to refer to a little bit here. So he's saying, hey, you hear the sound, you can't tell where it comes from or where it goes or where it's going. When it departs, you, you don't know where it went, and you don't know when it's coming back. You don't know. You don't understand. This is how it is for everyone born of the Spirit. That's great. We've understood all that, but I, how is that? What is, right? Like, I, I read that like a thousand times I read it, and I was like, cool. What does that really mean? It's actually pretty simple. He's talking to someone. Remember, who's Nicodemus? We already defined all this. He's talking to someone who's, who understands Scripture. You're about to see Jesus kind of like, you don't know this? You, you know, that's like, that's like Jesus' second favorite line is like, you don't know this? He expects you to. Uh, <laughs> but what he's saying is, I'm ta- he's talking to someone who knows all of these things. He knows scripture. He could quote it left and right and every, I mean, everything. And he's saying, hey, you don't have to understand all this first before you are born of the Spirit. You don't have to know. You can see the wind, right? Like, you, you can see the effects of the wind, but you don't understand how the wind works. You don't know where it goes, where it comes from. You just know the wind. You see the effects of it, but you know that the wind is there. And Jesus, there's this parallel trying to say, hey, this is how it works in the Spirit. You're not going to get it all taught to you and learned everything before you go, and then now you're born. He's saying, no, this is going to happen from the Spirit, and you won't understand it all as it happens. So don't try to figure it all out. It's almost like Jesus is trying to tie in a little bit about faith right here, where he's trying to say, you're not going to get it all up front, and that's okay. That, that's fine. <laughs> all right, so then Nicodemus said, how can this be? 
where a lot of us are about as thick-headed as Nicodemus. We just how? I don't understand. I've got to, you've got to give God. Before I step out and trust you with things, you've got to tell me all the plan. In verse 10, Jesus answered unto him and said, You are a master of Israel, and you don't know these things? <laughs> Again, I love that. Like, Jesus is pretty savage with this stuff, guys. Like Every time he's talking to the disciples or Pharisees, he's like, this is common knowledge. The kingdom of God is not hidden from you. He's like, I read the scripture, and I, I got this. How did you not get this? You're supposed to be the one teaching all of us, and you don't get this. Jesus seems to think this is pretty simple. And then Jesus continues on with, Verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak that which we do, and we testify of what we have seen, and ye receive not our witness, verse 12. If I had told you earthly things or natural things, and you believe them not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Now, we read a scripture, guys, not too long ago. That Paul is talking. And what does Paul say? Paul is saying, I want to speak to you about spiritual things, but I can't because you're so immature, all you think about is natural things. And so I can't even talk to you about the spiritual things because all you're concerned about is the natural things. I wonder where Paul got that from. Jesus is saying, look, you don't even believe us when I tell you about natural things that we've seen and done. No wonder you don't believe me about these spiritual things. Okay. We'll continue on. Verse 13. No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so will the Son of Man be lifted up. Let's pause right there. We're getting pretty close to, I mean, the scripture of all scripture, John 3.16, right? But let's break this down. No man ascended up to heaven but came down from heaven. In your notes, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into it. In your notes, you will see I have put about six or seven Old Testament scriptures that actually Jesus is pulling from and quoting from right here, where he's talking about things that ascend to heaven and not from heaven. He's talking about all this. And then we get this, this thing about the Son of Man, which is from heaven. And then we get this next thing. So we're gonna, if you're writing, taking notes, you can write down Son of Man because that's going to be an important one uh, that we're going to talk about here in a minute. And then we're going to decipher this thing of all of a sudden he just jumps to Exodus and starts uh, talking about, <laughs> and Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Right? Doesn't that seem a little bit out of left field? It's not, though. So what he's referring to is a situation that happened in Exodus. I gave you the exact address right there in your notes. And this is a situation with which the children of Israel, there is sickness in the children of Israel, and Moses is given some instructions to take, um, take a, a pole, and then there's these two brazen, made out of bronze, uh, serpents to, that coil around it, okay? If you look at any pretty much medical logo, you will notice that's what you see. And I actually pull it right from the Bible. Okay, And what happens with this, this situation is God says, anyone who looks on this will be healed. Come now, people. Are we seeing anything <laughs> at all yet? Is there any gears turning yet? Okay. Now, there's a couple things. Almost everywhere else in Scripture, when you see a serpent, it's a bad thing, right? Like Garden of Eden, serpent, bad thing. In Revelation, this serpent, it's a bad thing. However, what we have to understand is the serpent 
yes, tends to carry this idea of, of evil or this idea of, of like sin. But anything that is brazened, like say an altar, remember we studied a little bit about tabernacle worship, what has happened is because it had to go through fire, it is now purified and it kind of stands, that the, the, the bronze idea in the Hebrew culture kind of stood for like a purification judgment kind of a thing. So these brazen serpents was not sin issue. It was now there's righteous judgment for that sin. And who takes it on what? Across Christ. You don't even know there was that much symbolism from that story, did you? And what was the requirement of the children of Israel? To believe. It says that they have to look on it and believe. They didn't have to do a single thing. They just had to look on it and believe. And so who is Jesus talking to? Nicodemus, who understands everything. And Nicodemus is trying to say, I want to understand everything. And Jesus is trying to say, no, no, no. You just have to look and believe. And he says the same way that this happened, well, who would be lifted up and people must believe, that's what's got to happen to, to me. By the way, if you didn't know that son of man, that's in reference to Jesus is talking about himself. Okay? Now, this lifted up has... Two meanings. It has the meaning of physically lifted up because obviously like on a cross. And if you actually look, John is, again, literary ninja. Y'all remember? Because this word lifted up appears like four or five more times. And when in Acts is also, it's the exact same word in Greek. And it means to lift up, to ascend. Christ ascends. Okay, y'all aren't seeing that? So John knew what he was doing. He says, lift it up. Why didn't he say, he must be thrown on a cross? Because he could have. He wrote this after the cross happened. He could have. No. He said, I want to make sure you understand what has been said from, from centuries past, that you know all of these prophecies, the 351 that you had on that back table, all of these were to point to this person. And Jesus right here is saying, and hey, here I am, by the way. Okay? So he says right here, he will be lifted up, okay, on the cross, but also Lifted up, ascending to heaven. That's what he's saying right here. Now, in your notes, again, I just refer to them. There's a little, I put a little bit more about the Moses and the Exodus side of things in there. But again, for the sake of time, um, I don't want to uh, go into it at the moment. And so now the Son of Man. Now, verse 15. Here we go. Y'all ready for this? Some of y'all are about to go to sleep because you're like, I could quote this scripture in my sleep. Well, good job, Nicodemus. Do you understand it? Verse 15, that whosoever believes in him, who? The son of man that will be lifted up, that if you, all you got to do is look on him and then you'll be healed. And by the way, the word for salvation is the word soteria in the Greek, which means to be made whole or healed, saved. Okay. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Whoever believes on this will not perish, but have eternal life. All right. So if you do this, you're not going to perish. This shows us something just real quick. God's desire is that none should perish, but have eternal life. Now, this idea of eternal life here, we kind of think of it this way. We kind of think of it a life that doesn't ever end, right? Who would say, like, yeah, eternal life, a life that doesn't end. Yeah, you got, like, 10% of it. It really has this deeper understanding and meaning. A life, and I love the way that uh, the Strongs puts it, a life worthy to be called such. And it really has this idea of a quality, not like just a thing with a time frame, but like this quality of life. This, this, there's something about it that's vastly different, like a God kind of life, like something that God would intend. Like, I don't know, say Genesis chapter 1. 
Do I need to preach Genesis chapter 1? Okay, Genesis chapter 1, man is created in direct communication with God, and we choose not to anymore, not to partake of the tree of life, which, oh, by the way, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, y'all seeing this? And so he's saying, this kind of life, this is eternal life. Oh, wait, doesn't John 17 say this too, by the way? That this is eternal life to know God and him who you have sent, which is the person of Christ. This is this eternal life. So whoever believes, not understands logically, while that's great, hey, I'm a, I'm a, I love, guys, I love history. I love understanding the culture of who wrote it and where, because you can get understanding from it. It's not hidden understanding, but you can get, I love it. I love science. I love logicking and reasoning out, but none of that is a prerequisite at all. It's not necessary. Okay. And here we go, John 3.16. Let's see if we can do it without it on the screen. You all ready? Let's see how good, how much we went to, to, to children's church. Okay. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Good job, class. Wait, verse 17. For God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Okay. Now, why has this become the most popular verse like, of all time? Probably because it is one of the best phrased way to understand everything else all of Scripture is trying to help you understand. It's kind of like the cliff notes <laughs> of Christianity, <laughs> you know, like, um, now, unfortunately, it has became the cliff notes, and then we've just decided to get lazy with our spirituality, and that should not be the case at all. But let's break this down, shall we? For God so loved the world. Wait, we got to stop. Isn't the world a bad thing? Isn't it? Yeah. Yes? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the room. That's Romans, okay, right, right? Do not be of the world. You're, you know, you're in the world, but not of the world. The world's a bad thing, right? Who would agree the world is a bad thing? It's not a trick question, guys. <laughs> Y'all are all scared to raise your hand right now, like, I'm not raising my hand. He's got something up his sleeve. There's no aces up my sleeve. What we have to do is understand what this word means. Now, that's why I printed out the entire chapter in Greek for you, just for fun, uh, so you could look through it. If you actually compare and look up which word is the word world here, it is a word that is commonly pronounced as cosmos, where we get the word cosmic from, okay? And if you look at it with, uh, and, and I know y'all can't see this, I, I doubt I could zoom in, but it looks like it starts with a K and O with a little apostrophe thing over it, like a little weird S and all this kind of stuff. If you find that word, it's like the sixth one in the Greek side of it, okay? It's the word cosmos. The reason I wanted to point that out is because if you look at that word cosmos and then go compare it to other Greek words cosmos, they're not the same word. Okay, they're very, very similar, but they're not the exact same word. Now, this word cosmos, some of you have heard me um, talk about this. Who's heard me talk about this before? Oh, I talk too much. This word world is the word cosmen, not cosmos. There's a difference. Now, we don't have this in English, but like Spanish and pretty much every other language has. They have uh, masculine and feminine, right? Now, Greek and Hebrew both have masculine, feminine, and neuter gender, okay? I forgot we're recording. I'm not going to say certain things I was about to say. Okay, uh, <laughs> masculine, feminine, neuter gender. That neuter gender just means 
a, in, like a thing. So there is this masculine idea, this feminine idea, and then there's this thing idea. It's, it's not a person, it's a thing, right? Like we have that in English, right? We know this is, it's a person, place, or thing. A thing, right? So that's a piano, that's a guitar, this is a water bottle. These are things, okay? But I am, am a person, right? And then I can either be male or female, okay? Now, the reason they have this is so that you can tell just by the spelling of a word, you would know if I'm referring to a person and if I'm referring to an, uh, uh, a man or a woman, or if I'm referring to a thing, okay? Does that make sense? One word can have up to 26, I think it is, different spellings in Greek, and they all have different meanings. Then they also have case-sensitive, like uh, uh, not case like uppercase, lowercase, but like what uh, parcel of speech it is. It could be de demonstrative. It could be accusative. Uh, it could be uh, neutral. There's all this other stuff. You wonder why people don't speak Greek anymore. Could you imagine going to school and be like, hey, let's learn this word today. There's 26 ways to spell it. Like, right? Like, it's, it's, but it had a lot of understanding that was packed into every one because it's an idea-based language. Again, do not take this for granted that, like, oh, this is all kind of esoteric understanding. No, I'm just giving you the understanding that the person, when they wrote it, and the person who read it back then would have totally got. They would not have been confused by this, okay? The only reason we are is because we're lazy and we don't want to do the work it takes, okay? I know, I'm sorry, but it's the truth, okay? So for God so loved the world. This word world, the, the main word is cosmos, where we get the word cosmic, and it simply means a system of orderly arrangement, right? That would be my wife's living room. It is a system that is orderly arranged, it is also the same thing in our coffee little bar area because if you put the wrong orange coffee pod in the wrong thing, she, you have messed up her orderly arrangement and she puts it back the way it's supposed to go. Okay? Everyone has this, right? Sh should I keep meddling right here for a minute? My wife has an orderly arrangement of hangers. I don't know if anybody else has this argument, but I just rip things off the hanger and leave the hanger where it was, and inevitably we're looking for hangers, right? And her system of orderly arrangement is you take it down off of the hanger. You take off the shirt that you're going to wear or jeans, and you put the hanger at the end. So when we're doing laundry, all of the hangers are there, okay? Y'all may be thinking, like, hey, she's not in here. Y'all are like, that's why he's saying it. No, no. Okay, what is this? It is a system. It, one may would say it's the way it ought to be. Right? It's the way it ought to be. What is the word in our scripture of the way one ought to be? Righteousness. Right standing the way it ought to be. So if the word cosmos means a system of orderly arrangement, the way something should be, we need to know if what thing it's talking about is the physical thing or the person thing. And guess what? It's a person. So this word world simply means, all right, we got, we got 10 minutes and then I, I can get through this. I can do this. I can do this. It's the word cosmen, not cosmos, not like men, like man. It's just the way it's pronounced, okay? And it literally means a person. So for God so loved this arrangement of a person. Guys, 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 what was that arrangement? Genesis chapter 1, right there when he creates man, and Genesis chapter 2, when we see Adam, what is the creation? The breath, pneuma, and that word, it's actually ruah because it's Hebrew, but it means the same thing. And it's the breath of God breathed directly into man, almost like they're physical, but yet also born of the 
spirit there or something? Isn't that interesting? And then man is in what? Direct communication and communion with God, right? That's the way that man ought to be. And so for God so loved that arrangement that he originally created the way he originally wanted it, that's what he wanted to save. That he was willing to give his only, uh uh-oh, what's this word here? Begotten. Now, this word begotten is the same word earlier from born, except for it's, it, got, it got a little bit extra to it. It begots a little bit extra, okay? <laughs> okay, so <laughs> this one means to be begotten of, to come from, but specifically one of a kind. Like there's only one of these, <laughs> okay? So he's saying that he would be willing to give the only one of this type of son. Now, mind you, we're all called sons and daughters, yes, But this is the only type that was this way. And he said, I'm willing to give that for this original way I created man. That all you got to do is what? Now we're right back. He just, it was so important to understand that if you just believe you won't perish and have eternal life, he said it twice in two verses. Because then what does he say? He repeats it. He so loved it that he'd be willing to give this that whoever believes on him would not perish but have everlasting life. Eternal and everlasting life are the same thing. They just changed up the word in English so it didn't sound so repetitive, to be honest with you. Now this next piece, for God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved, okay? Now right here, this word world is still in the cosmos. It's still talking about a person. So for God sent his son into... Guys, are y'all seeing this? He sent his son into what? A system of orderly arrangement, us, the man, not to condemn. And guys, what what does the word condemn mean? Y'all are all thinking, condemn, whip us into shape. And and, and like putting boards over a house because it's condemned. That word condemn means to be separated from. To be separated. So for God sent his son into a fleshly body that then was about to be in Acts chapter 2 poured out to all flesh bodies, which is what Joel talked about, by the way. Okay, it's all the same thing that he's talking about. Not to separate man, but that man, that this, this system of order, the original one, might be what? Saved, made whole, healed, put back together. For he that believes on him is not condemned, is not separated. But he that believes not is already separated. Because you're already separate from the Spirit of God if you don't see that. If you don't see, if you don't see the Spirit of God in Christ, you're, you're separate from it. He's saying you're already missing it. Because he that had believed... Uh, sorry, <clears throat> real quick. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten uh-oh, Son of God. Why doesn't it say son of man like it did all the other places? So real quick, I'm going to rip the, the, y'all know what the word esoteric means, right? It means like hidden knowledge only for the elite. Okay, that's kind of what it means. And I use that because it's a faster way of saying it, okay? But I see sometimes eyebrow raising, okay? Let me just rip the esoteric band-aid off of this son of God, son of man. What is this? He's these two things in one. Whoa. It's not hard, guys. Son means one begotten of. Of man means natural, meaning he is a physical person. Jesus. Son of God, one begotten of. 
the Spirit. Didn't he just get through talking to Nicodemus about born of the natural and of the Spirit? That's all that these two terms mean. So when you read them everywhere in Scripture, you'll notice there's a difference when it says Son of Man and Son of God. Because what was he talking about up to this point? He was talking about physically being lifted up in in the wilderness just like that. He was talking about his physical attributes and the things in the physical realm, thus Son of Man, this body. But then he turns around and says, now the begotten of God, the spirit side of me that, oh, by the way, what is baptism? It's the laying down of an old man, picking up of a new man. He did that for all righteousness to be fulfilled. It was almost like, yeah, this is going to take everybody off. I'm going to say it this way. Jesus had a born again experience. He didn't need it, but he did it for you so you would understand it. Y'all didn't catch that, did you? So real quick, and then Jesus gets real savage right here. I've got like four more, three more verses, okay? Right here. And this is the condemnation. This is the separation. This is the issue right here. The light that has came into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Guys, when did Nicodemus come to him? At night. This is not just Jesus saying light and darkness. He's straight up calling Nicodemus out. (laughs) He's straight up saying, hey, this light is coming to the world, and you're kind of believing on it, but you would rather keep it quiet. (laughs) Y'all didn't see? (laughs) He's straight up calling him out. Wouldn't you like to be like, I want to have a conversation with you, Jesus, all night long. He's like, all night long. He's like, how about in the daytime where everybody sees you? Like, how about that one? Why? Because their deeds were evil, okay? This word evil is one of my, like, favorite understandings, and it's a word in Greek, paneros. And this paneros, evil, doesn't mean, like, bad in nature, bad in content. It actually means full of labors, annoyances, and toils. So he said, because all your deeds are laborious, they're annoyances, they're your toil in trying to get these things. Jesus is almost like referring to all of the religious things that you have to work towards and all the ways you're twisting all this stuff. Because remember, we already read in the wedding of Cana, he's taking something and submerging it into the spirit. So he's saying, you're trying to hide from this light that's bringing, that was put into you to become this orderly arrangement. And he's saying, because all of your actions are full of this. And then in verse 20, he says, for everyone that does evil, paneros, does this labors, noises, and toils, hates the light. Now, the, again, what does Paul say? Paul says that, oh, the, 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 the natural is enmity against the spirit. What is that? It's hates, meaning they're, they're opposites. They, they don't correlate. They cannot even, they cannot consist within the same area. They are two opposite sides of a magnet. Constantly, they cannot be melded or twisted together. So he says, if you do this labors, annoyances, and toils, you hate the light. It's almost like Revelation said, like, hot or cold, not in the middle. Neither does it come to the light, lest his deeds be reproved. And I love this right here. Reproved means to be shed light on. It means to, like, be confronted, yes, but it means, like, now I, I put some light on this thing. Now, again, just real quick for all of us religious church. Yeah, see, let's shine the light on people's evil. Uh, that's between them and God. Just, just let God deal with it. It's not your job. Your job is to share, not to save the world. Jesus did that for you. Don't worry about it, okay? 
But he that does the truth comes to the light for his deeds. Oh, wait, there is some work here involved. See, don't be a lazy Christian. Be made manifest that they are wrought in God. And the word wrought here means to work or they are the work of God. Now, real quick, guys, again, Genesis. What was the curse that came upon man? To work. No, work was already there. <laughs> Mike, you're supposed to say those things when she's not in the room, man. <laughs> no, what was it? It says, now that your work will be laborious or toilless. So what is this in reference to? You're going to toil without the light, but hey, that was a part of the curse. If you come to the light, just let it be known, let it be shown, and then turn from it. Oh, it's almost like repentance is right here in this thing. Come to the light, come to the truth. It says, now your deeds will be made manifest, and there'll be a shine light, because that's the work of God. It will become the work of God whenever you actually fully get rid of all the rest of that. Now, after this, Jesus came to his disciples in the land of Jada, and they tarried there uh, and baptized. We're going to start talking about that in a couple weeks. That's where we're going to kind of stop with the, with the scriptures at this moment. Oh, look, I did pretty good, guys. Um, so what I want to wrap us up with here is like, okay, cool, Jared. So we read this whole, this whole kind of dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. And I, I highly encourage you to look at all the connections that I gave you there to the Old Testament because there's a lot of stuff that Jesus is pulling from from the Old Testament. Remember, we looked at that in his 40 days in the wilderness. Every response he had, he was just straight up quoting the Old Testament, right? So this was ingrained inside of him. So go back and look at that stuff. But the thing that we need to see is this interesting, and I kind of dabbled on it with you. If you look at what John is doing in his gospel from the beginning, right, that opening what's commonly referred to as a cosmic hymn where he's saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word, it's kind of poetic, but he's drawing this picture and this understanding of the creation of all things and how here comes Christ on the scene later on. And as he's painting this, then he goes and takes us into this baptism idea. Then he takes us from that that baptism idea and into this trial and test idea. He takes us from this trial and test idea to this idea of this wedding in which Jesus is taking things that are, are not supposed to be that the way that they are and then turn it into something. It's almost like right there in the wedding of Cana, by the way, just for fun, just kind of think about this for a minute. He took water in some barrels and turned it into wine. It's almost like it was reborn into something different. You see what John's trying to do is get this one idea across to you. One of the examples that I put in here about this born-again idea, because we use the term all the time, who's ever heard that? Like, that's kind of the way we even ask if people have been saved and born again. But a lot of us, we don't, we're like Nicodemus. We're like, uh, what does that mean, you know, really? And one of the things that we, that we have to, to, to break down and look at it is that this is the requirement. This is the one requirement right here, one requirement. To be, to see and perceive and to enter into the kingdom. The way God does things, his way of doing things. The thing we need to understand is this one requirement is something that actually only requires your obedience. But we need to also understand this has nothing to do with eternity. I know that doesn't settle well with you, but it's the truth. This is not in reference to your eternal salvation. This is in reference to your salvation, which, yes, is eternal, but your life here and now and how you are supposed to be actively bringing about the kingdom of God in this world. That is the literal reason why we are called the body of Christ, because last I checked, Christ doesn't have a body anymore save yours. 
Y'all don't believe that? I can go study that with you real quick. He rose again in Acts chapter 1, ascends. He has no physical body anymore. He said, no, 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 I just poured it out into all flesh, which is what the prophet Joel talked about. So quite literally, this entering into the kingdom, perceiving the kingdom and understanding it, Jesus was talking about it in the here and the now. Meaning, yes, your eternal salvation is tied up in this, but what I need you to be more concerned about is all the rest of my cosmen, all the rest of my people that are not in in the right standing with me. I need you to go make sure that they all are, because if I so love the world that I gave, I need you to give. So if you think and you take your belief in Christ and your salvation as some kind of a personal thing and you don't understand it's really all for you to pour out to everyone else, you've missed the entire heart of Christ. It's about the here and the now of doing it. Now, real quick, because I heard some, somebody religious right now just in your mind being like, oh, it's all about here and now. He's just natural. No, nothing about the kingdom is about the natural. So if you think it's about here and now and enjoying my, I was about, I'll say it, enjoying my best life now, what not? No. It's about living so much for the kingdom. And Jesus says it this way, and we'll read this coming up pretty soon. Next on the vault, we'll read the fact that he says, so much so that you don't even think about what you're going to eat. Consumed that much with things not of this world that you don't even worry about. I got tested on that, guys. Can I share a quick story? I I got a minute. On Sunday, I was tested about that. Straight up. Because we were all having an eating meeting. And y'all were all back there chowing down and everything else like that. And I had an individual that that came up to me just swelling with emotion saying, Why is no one talking about Jesus like this? I have questions. And I had a choice. I passed. I get to share a passing one. Normally I share my failures. And I had a choice. In the scripture, I'm, I'm telling you, if it wasn't the spirit of God that just said... Do you care about this morning? Because I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was hungry. We just got through singing and praying for two hours, and then I taught for an hour. It was a three-hour-long service, and I'm like, I just want some water, and I just want to sit down. And, and I said, no, all right, I'm going to do it. And proceeded to, to set and continue to have a conversation with someone that was hungry to know. Like, I get Jesus more. He already kind of got it, but now he's getting it even, even more. And it says this is to be consumed with the kingdom. Now, don't get me wrong. I did eat later in the day. Okay, It was like Jesus could have gave me 5,000 fish and loaves of bread, and I would have ate it all. But this is what it means to sit there and to, and to say, I, will, I care more about seeing the kingdom of God. This is how the scripture is fulfilled. The gates of hell will not prevail against what? The church, which is you. But it will prevail if you are not an access point to the kingdom of God. As Christ was the door, you were supposed to keep that door open and live your life in the manner that whenever they look, that all they see is Christ. 